The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! And welcome back to Episode Zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, my name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Everybody calls me Whitney Seibold. And this is uh, a film that was released after the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But! But uh, deals with a lot of things throughout the Hollywood firmament uh, in... Little clips that are pertinent to the existence of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, to put it another way, I think this is one of the must-see documentaries about film and film mm. history. I think this documentary does a lot of things amazingly. Yes. And I think this movie is an absolutely important introduction to not just a lot of cinematic history, but an important way to look at a lot of cinematic history and by immersing us within all of these films and all of these clips that all focus around a singular context, um, you're going to pick up on things that you might not necessarily pick up on as easily if yeah, you were looking the, at them piecemeal. So just one movie at a time, you'll, yeah, you'll get subtext. Looking at all of them together, you realize just how important this perspective was and yeah. is. Um, it, it's one of the first films I saw that dealt very directly with representation. Uh, in media. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also one of the first films I saw that really kind of gave a grand arc to uh, Hollywood history. Now, there were a lot of films that did this. Uh, this is just one of the first films that I came came aground on. Uh, but this one gives a very important social timeline to the way Hollywood evolved and is still evolving. Now, the film we're talking about came out in the mid-90s. And a lot has evolved since then. Oh boy, would, has it. I would love to see a sequel to this film. Oh my god, that'd be amazing. But everything that this film deals with uh, from the uh, inception of cinema up until the mid-90s is still very pertinent. Yeah, and uh, that film is The Celluloid Closet. Tommy, hit it up. Let's have it. It's the myth. To be a gay man meant that you not only did you wear pinched clothes and you had this kind of look on your face, but you carried a purse as well. It's the girls. I think the feeling is two women are together, then it's probably experimental or some kind of phase. And, you know, if the right guy came along, that would all change. It's the guys. You know, that's why people say, oh, I'm a, I'm a man. Like, being a man is based on who you happen to be boning that day. It's the truth. That kind of sexuality of ours, which overlaps. Some like it hard, some like it soft. I've got to tell you, I can't keep it to myself any longer. I'm guilty. You're guilty of nothing. Why would Martha break down and say, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm so polluted. I'm, I've ruined you. I've... She would fight. Cellular Closet is a documentary uh, made by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, documentarians who are still working. Rob Epstein uh, won Oscars. Um, he did. One Oscar he just nominated. I know he did oh. like a couple years ago. He was nominated for a short film about end of life care. Uh, he did a, a film about um, the the. You're right. He did the, he did the, the Times the, of Harvey the, Milk. Times of Harvey Milk. He did the Harvey Milk documentary, and he did one about Common the, the Threads. Quilt. Common Threads, which is the, the quilt. Uh, queer rights documentary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's made several films about queer rights. And, yeah. and other, I was thinking about uh, his work with Jeffrey Friedman. Okay. And together, they were nominated for a film called Endgame, which is an absolutely devastating documentary yeah, short about yeah. end-of-life care. Um. Yeah, that one that one's really tough to sit through. Um, yeah. But yeah, in a good uh, way though, in a really beautiful, important way. It's just I wouldn't do it, you know. Just like, hey, what do you want to watch tonight, kids? Yeah, the like the Times of Harvey Milk and Common Threads were other films by Rob Epstein. 
this is based on a book um, which was written by uh, Vito Russo, who is a very important figure in uh, in gay rights history mm-hmm. uh, in that he was one of the co-founders of GLAAD. 1985, uh, yeah. Uh, he was uh, a victim of AIDS and uh, was actually touring on the topics covered in the celluloid closet for like almost 20 years before mm-hmm. the, they were uh, putting this down on film. And they've been trying to for a while. There's a lot of interest, but there were some practical considerations actually, actually because raising money for something like well this. you got to raise money for it you also have to get all of hollywood essentially to agree to give you a lot of clips because this yeah. movie does not exist without clips to demonstrate yeah, exactly the, the what we're seeing because this is a film about the way that uh, uh the queer community uh was represented in hollywood cinema from the silent era up until at the time the present day that requires that that's dozens, if not hundreds, if not maybe I, I, I couldn't count, but tons of clips. And you need to get the rights to all of them. You need to get rights to redistribute all of them. And some people weren't even comfortable with their films being included in this documentary because, because it, of what it might say about their films. Well, because it, it's incredibly critical of uh, the way gay characters were depicted. Yeah. Uh, and this takes us through a lot, not just it shows like early, I think one of the earliest clips is like from. Like Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison yeah. film of, it's two, of two men, men dancing, dancing together. Yeah. Uh, and it goes through uh, when queerness was a little bit more uh, open, that is, in uh, in Hollywood history. Uh, they're rather famously, and they show this in the movie, uh, there's a kiss at the end of the Academy Award winning film Wings. Yeah. Where uh, the two male characters who were separated and at odds throughout this big wartime drama uh, are finally reunited. And as one lays dying, the other leans forward and kisses him on the mouth. And there's been some uh, debate since then, like in in the modern age, at least to my ear, uh, whether or not the characters were secretly in love. Mm-hmm. Or if they were perhaps lovers. Yeah. Or if perhaps and, uh, this was a time when men were allowed to be more openly affectionate and yeah, it well, is supposed to be... And they less codified. Well, they they yeah. take they they talk about this in the film. The closet as didn't really exist because nobody knew it was there. Mm. Nobody knew there was a closet, so mm. it's it's not like there was a closet for like well, men. Straight men could be affectionate with one another because they were people weren't even thinking that like, there could be something like gay. They weren't even thinking yeah. of gay. Characters. Which isn't which isn't to say that uh, homosexuality was out in the open and there was no homophobia. No. But like the idea that the uh, men would be constantly terrified of, of being affectionate yeah. or being perceived of mm. as queer was not as much the norm. And so we had a lot of. Uh, characters in early Hollywood films, often used to, uh, often for the production code, mm. that were uh, more openly queer. Yeah, and there were a lot of uh, there were, and they go through it. There were jokes. There were stock mm. character types. There was a, a really wonderful gag out, uh, from an early talkie where um, a man approaches a dancing couple, a man and a woman, and says, "May I cut in?" And the woman. Step, turns to the other man expecting to be taken and the man takes the other man yep. and they dance off together and the band leader who's just standing right over them just says boys will be boys that, that's a gay joke mm-hmm. right there and it's it's not making fun of the gay characters it's not it's not very hateful no, no it's just it's, it's it's it was a it was an adjustment of expectation mm. But that there, is, there that were, in of itself is there issue, were gay but... men, and the the joke is on the woman in that scenario, who's yeah. sort of left in a huff, like with no dance partner. Yeah. Um, now again, there were, and, and this is all stuff that is discussed mm. in the documentary. We're going to walk you through it a little bit, mm. so that this podcast will, in some respects, basically be a Cliff's Notes of the documentary. We'll also talk about and, and the, what documentary the documentary itself is a is Cliff's Notes. Yeah, but, it yeah. is. But this is so this is kind of a copy of a copy. But we think this is important history to discuss. We've discussed it. Uh, in bits and pieces, as we've discussed the history of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, or the prehistory, rather, mm. of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, we also really want people to see this documentary, because although there's a few things I, fi- I find worthy of criticism in it, I think it's overall amazing. Mm. Um, and uh, it's it's readily available, it's easy to find streaming. Um, but, um, yeah, this is this is stuff that needs to be... Uh, more talked about so there's they talk about a lot of different stock archetypes and how there were a lot of queer characters who were treated as joke characters yeah well and And this this is true for a lot of marginalized people as well joke characters um the sort of cliche of the the sissy Mm -hmm. and and sissy uh, is 
It's a it's a slur for gay. Uh, hmm. We I heard the term sissy a lot when I was a little kid. Same. It was considered uh, to, a derogatory. Yeah, it was a be, derogatory. Uh, don't yeah. don't be that. And it was meant yeah. to describe someone who was like weak or cowardly or, or effeminate. Or, or effeminate. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't be. It, it means gay. But the sissy yeah. stock character started to make its way into uh, Hollywood films around the time of the Hayes Code, when there was a lot of just moral crusading going on in America, and a lot of uh, sex and sexuality was being forcibly pushed aside. Yeah. And so these characters that were previously gay... Clearly gay. Clearly gay. Yeah. uh, Became sort of muddled, where they were still performing the same function in the storyline. They were still acting exactly the same. They were still exactly the same characters, but you couldn't talk about it. Yeah, and so we would still get these characters mm. in a lot of movies, but this is the first clear example in the movie, anyway. Yeah, of how ne- when uh, the Hayes Code, which is again this extremely rigorous uh, series of very conservative rules that dictated mm. what could or could not be portrayed in Hollywood movies for and, many decades, and Hollywood, uh, I think they tried to make it as strict as possible because mm. the. They didn't want the government on their backs. The no. government was, was the only, concerned that too much rough stuff was making its way into movies. As far as the studios were concerned, and, the yeah. only thing worse than having to have all of their movies censored was to have all of the movies censored by the government and people going to jail if they fuck it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You watch some uh, you know, pre-code musicals and or just any pre-code movies. There's there's plenty of sex in those things. There's sex. There's watch nudity. A, there's watch violence. Tar- Tarzan and his mate at some point. There's just outright nudity in that. Movie. We will be getting to that actually. Uh, yeah. This, or uh, or look over the career of uh, Theta Bara. She you know she was oh, in a lot of movies. Said nudity. With, yeah. yeah Wings said nudity. Uh, and it, yeah, it was just sort of part of film there was no uh, censorship program there were no ratings nope. uh, but yeah and in the mid 30s hollywood came up with the hayes code to get the government off their backs and as such it really locked down cinema un- and it's still going on yeah uh, because the, we still yeah. live under the mpaa system well we live under the mpaa system but also we live under the the sort of the weight of all this history where mm-hmm. from the 30s until pretty comfortably into the 60s a lot of Hollywood movies were still following, if not directly, then at the very least in spirit, the Hayes Code or the production code, if you will, and the expectations of how movies were supposed yeah. to de- depict certain types of behavior, whether it be sexual or criminal or mm. anything at all, really, that wasn't just like, just yeah, any, everything's nice. Any, like you, any vices whatsoever. A, any perceived now, the, vices. The, uh, just to so my, go I, off on a tangent for a minute. R- real um, fast, so I'm okay. just saying like we had all of these sort of rules that we lived under, and they create all of this expectation of how movies are supposed to tackle certain subjects mm. visually, narratively, in terms of various well, and coatings, and we just sort of s- still have that to deal with, and we and often several, reference yeah, it. Several generations now have grown up under the echoes of the Hayes Code. Exactly. And... Uh, what the uh, letter rating system that the Motion Picture Association of America came up with was supposed to take the curse off that. Yeah. It was supposed to say, I, there's actually grades here. It's not just yeah. censored or not. It's all, okay, this one's okay for kids. This one's a little rougher. This one's yeah. for adults. The idea and, was yeah, supposed to be freeing. You can do whatever you want yeah, and we'll if, just if tell you, the audience what it is and then mm-hmm. they'll be fine, right? The, the problem is the way those ratings ended up being perceived was another sort of marketplace censorship. Yeah. Uh, and as such, if a film did deal with a lot of adult themes and got the uh, X or later NC-17 rating, mm-hmm. a lot of theaters wouldn't carry that. Theaters wouldn't and, carry it. Newspapers wouldn't advertise it yeah. back when that was a really important way to promote a movie. And yeah, and then well, in the home video days, uh, you know, Walmarts and Targets wouldn't carry NC-17 rated films. Blockbuster would re-edit uh, them down sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or they'd get a rated version, which was edited. Uh, yeah. So a lot of these ideas of what belong, what goes into movies mm-hmm. is part is part of the Hayes Code from the 30s yeah. that we're still living down. And now... Hollywood has been self-censoring for so long, they, they can't even really stretch anymore. Mm-hmm. Like when, when was the last time you even heard of something coming out with an NC-17 rating, like from a, stu- like a big studio? Was it Showgirls? I think it was Lust Caution. Um, oh, it might have been Lust Caution. But even that, that was, was like, like at least 15 years ago. That was like 2006 that movie came Somewhere out? Somewhere like that. That's the last um, one. I can, I mean, I'll look that up. That's actually a little bit yeah. trivial. I'll see if I can find that. Actually, this is important for us, uh, for the Schmodown. Oh, we, yeah, we, we, we might need to know something like that. But uh, as such... Things like uh, like adult movies for adults that deal with adult things in a direct and a mature fashion, not prurient necessarily, but things you know, films about sex uh, aren't so common anymore. And 
it's taken a long time, this big wave of independent cinema and a lot of films that have been operating kind of uh, around and through the MPAA rating system for queer stories to become common again. Blue is the warmest color. That was the last NC-17 Near as I can tell, okay. that's the last. I'll keep looking, but... Th- 2013, yeah. Near as I can tell, that's the last one. That Oftentimes, they will receive an NC-17, mm. and then they'll they'll uh, they'll campaign to have it changed, or they will re-edit the film to have it changed. It's also telling that both Blue is the Warmest Color and Lust Caution are not American films. Good point. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're dealing with uh, kind of how Hollywood had to... And filmmakers and creative people had to work through this, not just uh, Hollywood censorship mechanism, but a lot of rising gay panic in the real world Mm. to depict queer stories on film. And The Celluloid Closet is brilliant because it shows the successes, but it leans just as hard on the failures. That is the way a lot of filmmakers tried to depict queer queer characters in film and didn't get it right or were really clumsy about it or were trying to tell a queer story but fell back on all of these really horrendous cliches that were building up over time. So we had a lot of these, like, mincing queer comedic sidekick characters Mm -hmm. that became a part of this this new vanguard. We had um, Celery Closet also points to the depressive gay character who is kind of full of self-loathing and right. and one and usually they're very suicidal and indeed uh there's a line in the movie The Boys in the Band the William Friedkin movie mm-hmm. where uh one of the char- all the characters in it are gay are gay men and one of them says that he refuses to end up like the gay characters in film and that means yeah. uh, you know having committed suicide because there are all these suicidal queer characters then you had films like we talked about it recently Rope where mm-hmm. we have these queer characters that are murderers. There's something deviant about them. Mm-hmm. And that will go in cycles mm. where, uh, you know, there will be the sort of the mm. murderer characters, but then around the 80s and the 90s, that boomed. And we got mm. this big, I mean, I think because it, it, the movie, Celia uh, Clusset doesn't really talk about Psycho, which no, is interesting. No, it because, talks about rope, but not Psycho. It's interesting and... because Psycho, uh, you know, deals with some of these issues somewhat indirectly. And, uh, and sometimes rather directly, mm. and it left this sort of, I think, scar yeah. on the horror genre that um, unfortunately codified a lot of queer characters as yeah. monsters very directly. And, and yeah, just go straight to the Silence of the Lambs Silence from Lamb. there. Yeah. Basic Instinct. Mm. Uh, there's a the, uh, the idea of the, the murderous bisexual is uh, uh, something they cover. Uh, this idea that uh, bisexual people are just depicted as these, just the sort of morals-free hedonists uh, as as sort of a, mm-hmm. a type. That's something that was really typified with Basic Instinct. Yeah, and uh, there are a lot of they talk to a lot of different people, including some uh, lesbians who are, take great issue with the depiction of what's her name, Catherine Trammell. Yeah. in in Basic Instinct. I and, remember even when I was a kid, yeah. and I wasn't really like aware of a lot of these mm. adults' contacts. I remember reading about the, the the backlash against Basic Instinct when it came out. Yeah. At yeah. the time. And indeed, there was a lot of actual protests for a lot of these movies when they came out. The question is, who was really controlling who saw these protests? Yeah, yeah. How much coverage were they actually getting in the media and how seriously were mm. they being taken? So when you hear people talk about now, there's some people who say that like Silence of the Lambs like it wasn't that mm. big a deal at the time. Yeah, it was. Mm. Just but wasn't the, that press coverage. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't reading about that at the time, and I'm ashamed of that. Mm. But that was not in the the newspapers that I was reading well, or the also, magazines that I read. That came out in the early '90s. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was in junior high school yeah. in 1991. I, when I, I came out. So, yeah. yeah. So, but regardless, like the the conversation is increasingly open, which is one of the reasons why I wish so. Like they're right. I, I was thinking this too. I wish the celluloid closet would get a sequel so we could talk about how. Uh, queer cinema has evolved and, well, and, and changed and sometimes for the better and in some ways not always great my, uh, since. My main criticism with The Cellulite Closet is how um, it focuses a little too heavily on just film and not the larger world, like what was mm-hmm. going on in the world in terms of uh, what was legal and what was illegal and what, what was yeah. legal in certain countries. Larger the actual context. politics and the context mm-hmm. of of queerness would have been nice instead it just sort of focuses on film history which is fine mm-hmm. uh, gotta focus somehow otherwise you have yeah you know, the movie's gonna be eight hours long and that could have been fine by the way I don't know if th- you can hear that do. but my neighbors are doing laundry 
on their machine is off balance. Hopefully that's not too loud, and I apologize for that. Oh, but yeah, I, I wish that they, like they talked about, you know, the AIDS crisis and that's, mm-hmm. that was something that gave a lot of filmmakers license to write in these really, uh, stereotype homophobic characters uh, as sort of these like wicked well, things or these joke things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was just really awful, uh just how badly film was treating queer characters for the longest time. There's also an interesting, they talk about how so many queer characters in cinema, uh, once cinema started treating them, not as comic relief characters, Mm. but important characters within the narrative were given these tragic stories filled with self-loathing or uh, people who were destined to uh, die as some sort of like martyrs. Yeah. yeah. There doesn't to be martyred or they're going to be demonized. And then they have to, you know, the hero has to the straight hero, the straight hero inevitably has to dispatch of them in some way. Um, And there's a lot of the people, and we should talk about some of the people who are interviewed because it's a hell of a cast um, talking about how, you know, representation is fine, but we're being treated as the villains, and then we don't get to live. Mm. There's people who don't even we don't even get to survive to the end of the movie a lot of the time. It's often telling in this kind of documentary, and this is one of the things that this is probably my, I think my biggest critique. Um, towards the end of a documentary covering uh, history, if it comes up to the present day, mm. uh, you don't know what the future will hold, and at some point, you want to try to find a way to sort of end the movie. You know, try to try to find a way to uh, make it seem like, and we've come to a natural ending point. Yeah, and it feels like this movie's natural ending point, according to the filmmakers, because spent a lot of time on it, is the movie Philadelphia, uh, which was a big Oscar-winning film starring Tom Hanks uh, as a gay uh, lawyer who contracts HIV and is fired for it, and he sues his old law firm, and Denzel Washington plays a homophobic lawyer who takes on the case. Mm. Uh, at the time, this was the, a huge movie. Oh, the, yeah, this yeah, the, this this, huge. this was an explosion in, in yeah. mainstream Hollywood. Anyway, yeah. um, there had been you know we were talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show that came out in the mid seventies. Sure, there had been plenty of queer films up to that point, but there wasn't a lot of mainstream representation. This was a and, really big mainstream film, and uh, it's been said that Jonathan Demme was trying to like apologize a little bit for The Silence of the Lambs, which was his previous film. I don't know uh, how true that is. He said it later on, but that like de- like years and years after the fact yeah. that he kind of saw it as a make good. Whether or not he was actually actively doing that is a matter of some debate. Right. But my my issue with the film isn't is partially that it makes it seem like and we did Philadelphia and we're fine now, which mm. is not true. It was there's a lot to like about that movie. Don't get me wrong, but I think we've I think queer film has evolved since. Mm. Actually, the thing about the movie that really kind of bothered me was Tom Hanks. His performance? No. I think Tom Hanks in The Celluloid Closet comes across rather badly. Mm. And it feels as though some of the interview subjects, and in particular Tom Hanks, aren't necessarily on the same wavelength as everyone else in the documentary. Because you have... Hmm. I mean, you have you have Gore Vidal, <laughs> yeah, Quentin Crisp. Yeah, yeah, you've got these incredible, you know, wonderful thinkers and queer icons. Pe- people who have given this a lot of thought. Yeah. And then you have some people who are, you know, uh, they're actors. Hmm. They're not necessarily part of the queer community, some of them. And some of them come across better than others. And I think Tom Hanks, feel, he talks about a scene in Vanishing Point. Where no, there yeah, are well, two he, queer criminals who are mm. beaten up by the hero, and, and, and he talks about how he, at the time he was well when he was when he was a young man, and yeah. this is how uh, how he and his other straight buddies mm-hmm. saw gay characters, and yeah. how they kind of were on the straight protagonist's side in that movie. Yeah, because well, they're seen as as potential car thieves. They have weapons. They carry them in a purse mm-hmm. they speak in these really kind of stereotyped lispy voices and he talks about how the audience cheered when they were beat up by the protagonist yeah, and, and he and he was in there he was cheering right. along and i appreciate uh mm. the, the being able to look back and say you know i was wrong mm. i made a mistake you know what he doesn't actually say mm. i was wrong i made a mistake he never actually was mm. actually says out loud in the documentary I, I, in no, retrospect think, it's implied he, he doesn't he doesn't it, say have an apology Im- on camera but i think Im- context is important and context is important yeah. but it's implied and it just comes across is kind of weird mm. and then later on his big moment when he's talking about Philadelphia mm. is he's talking about how they were trying to make a movie not for a queer audience but mm. for you know quote unquote everybody and also how 
it was generally understood that it wouldn't be like a big blockbuster success. And he's kind of talking down the movie a bit where he's like, people are going to be at the theater and Oh, here's an action movie and mm. here's a buddy comedy. And here's a movie about, you know, a lawyer's lawsuit and mm. dying and Oh, let's go see the lawyer movie. And it's this weird kind of self deprecating moment well, that just sort of, it just goes over like a lead balloon to me. Well, I'm, not I, say, I'm not saying he comes across as vicious or anything like that. It just seems like he's not in the right tone. Well, he's, it's self deprecating. I think it was just saying that uh, serious adult dramas about queer issues mm. aren't going to be capturing the same kind of audience as, you know, The Rock or something with a lot of explosions in it. And that's, and listen, and I get that, and, and, and that's fine. Yeah. My point is this. Those are the clips we get from him. We don't mm. get him saying, you know, mm. as much actually thoughtful and positive. We only get these, like, well, two and, clips and, where he's talking about it and kind of, like, he's talking about the negative sides of things, and it's just interesting that they're going to let Tom Hanks no, just and at, and at, come at, across like that. At the end, he does have a speech about how you know. At the end of the day, we all spell love the same way. That's that's the Tom right. Hanks line. Uh, so, I, I don't think he's talking down Philadelphia or his experience no, just, on it. I think he's it, just being a little bit uh, just as it a, feels a, like he's, a slight bit flip, as is his want. I, I think it's like fine. He's, he's being flip. That's exactly my point. He's mm. being flip. Mm. No one else in the movie is being flip, except mm. maybe as a brief aside. Okay. And that's kind of my point. He comes across like he's making slightly a different documentary, or they picked some odd clips from Tom Hanks. Well, I feel. but whatever. Maybe they, that's just me. He he seemed to stick out. I think point. I think the writers and the essayists and the film historians have much more interesting things to say than the actors. Exactly. Uh, which is generally true. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed this when uh, if when you uh, it's so fascinating when you get to the point where you're doing film criticism or other stuff mm. in the entertainment journalism world, and you get to interview people. The natural implication I find from most people is that it's got to be really cool to interview all those actors. Mm. Many of them are great and have wonderful stories. The people who have the most interesting stories consistently are the people who are making the bigger creative decisions behind the scenes. Mm. You can talk all you want about, you know, the narrative with the actors. They didn't write it usually. Yeah, Sometimes they did, but usually they didn't. All, all you can talk about with an actor is their their character. Yeah, or maybe the themes, but yeah. even then, they're only talking about their perspective on it. Mm. Because talking... they, it's their job as actors to get into the character, not necessarily into the themes. That's a writer or a director or somebody else's job. Yeah, oftentimes these things are a bit segmented. You handle this, we'll tackle the rest. Mm. And as a result, it's often more interesting, again, not unilaterally, but typically in my experience, to speak to the screenwriter or the director, sometimes the producer, if they're really hands-on. Uh, sometimes other creative people behind the scenes, like the editor or the cinematographer, they're, they're responsible for these very important decisions about how the actor's performances will come across. Mm -hmm. And they have more freedom to make those decisions at the end of the day. And as a result, yeah, like Harvey Firestein who's an actor who I had seen in a lot of comic relief roles growing up, everything mm. from Independence Day to Mrs. Doubtfire. He's so eloquent and smart. And like, I didn't, mm. you know, when I remember first seeing this movie and going, I didn't know he wrote stuff. That's yeah. awesome. I want to <laughs> like, see like, him writing stuff. I, I just, I, I as well just knew him as a sidekick character in movies. Yeah. I didn't realize, oh wait, he's involved in theater, isn't he? Yeah. It's kind of, kind of surprising. And uh, I've seen Harvey Firestein in, not just in this film, but in other interviews as well. Uh, he has a, a pretty or at least had a pretty mercenary view of queer representation yeah and it was representation at all costs yeah it didn't matter if it was bad representation or if it was inaccurate more mainstream audiences needed to see queer characters period yeah and uh and as such he w he wasn't going to come down on a film like cruising which you know is is pretty it's become a sort of a camp object or a cult movie in recent years, but it has been wildly reviled by many, many people for how badly it treats the queer community. I, I actually haven't seen Cruising, and I don't think a lot of Oh, people, you haven't? I, oh, my goodness. I think there are some people who aren't really aware of it, so give people mm. just a real quick rundown uh, of what that movie is. Cruising is a cop film uh, from the early 80s starring Al Pacino, uh, who plays a, uh, a heterosexual cop who is asked to find a serial killer who's been stalking victims in uh, the queer rough trade community, like mm. in fetish clubs and stuff. So he has to go undercover as a gay man who's into like leather and go into all these clubs looking for uh, somebody who might be stalking uh, the men who go there. And it's pretty rough. It's not handled with the utmost sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, Al Pacino's good, but he's always good. Uh, the, but the, at the, the end of the... clips they show in the movie are like shockingly violent considering the mm. rest of Celluloid Closet doesn't really have a lot of images yeah, and, of violence. 
And that's 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 another Friedkin movie. And uh, he he, uh, wanted to really sort of up the shock factor of it. Um, If you've ever heard of uh, the hanky code, like the color of the handkerchief you wear in your back pocket or which pocket you wear it in is a way to broadcast in a singles bar what you're into sexually. Um, That was invented for the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know uh, well, that. Well, uh, they say that there was like certain kinds of codes and sometimes handkerchiefs were involved, but the way it's depicted in the movie was all fictional. Just for the song. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I did not know that. I, yeah, cru- I, yeah. Cruising is a bizarre movie. It's, it's really rough. It's very strange. There's a scene where Al Pacino is beaten up by a big guy in a jock strap for no reason. Like he's taken back to the, the police station mm. and they call in a guy to, in a jock strap to beat him up. Hmm. And then he leaves and that's it. It's, hmm. it's like something out of a nightmare. Um, and, and, but it doesn't, you know, eventually, eventually it's just sort of another queer killer movie and, yeah. uh, and it, yeah, it's just not, not handled very well. One of my favorite interviews from, uh, actors, uh, hmm. in this movie was actually Shirley MacLaine. Hmm. Right. She has a really, really interesting interview about a film she made with Audrey Hepburn called the children's hour, hmm. uh, which is about, uh, two, uh, women, their teachers, uh, they're they're they in are, love. They, yeah, they're lovers. They're in love, and uh, the kids at their school find out somehow, and they tell their parents. I've actually never seen this movie, but mm. that's the gist of it, and that's what they show in the movie. They, they tell their parents, it becomes a whole thing. And uh, Shirley MacLaine's character, in the clips that we see from the film, um, is filled with self loathing and is terrified mm. of being outed, and, and screams out, "I'm guilty." Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Shirley MacLaine, I think, is actually really, really thoughtful about it. And she says, we meant well, but we were straight. Yeah. We didn't yeah. know what we were talking about. We, we, we tried, but we just didn't have the perspective. Mm. And we made something that didn't work and wasn't good and wasn't helpful. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Uh, great. I mean, it sucks that that representation got out there and was unfortunate, but at least we're talking about it openly and saying, whoops. And we're saying, like, we, we shouldn't do this. And mm-hmm. here's the here's the documentary where we're talking about it. The thing that I feel is really super important about the Sailor Closet, and I alluded to it at the beginning, is I feel like so often as film critics, what we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people who see movies mm-hmm. and they see movies from their own perspective, as we all do. But to try to watch movies from as many different perspectives as possible. Get as many voices in the conversation as possible. That's why, and we're grateful to every single person who listens to our podcasts, but listen to other people's podcasts too, if that's how you enjoy your movie reviews. Read other reviews. Mm -hmm. Watch other YouTube videos from really cool people who have different perspectives, come from different walks of life than us. Mm -hmm. That I try to do that as much as I can, and it's really illuminating for me, and I think it's made me not only a better critic and a better film fan, but a better person. Um, so many of the things that we see in the celluloid closet, there's a great montage, but it's horrifying, but it's a great montage oh, I, of towards the end of the movie. Uh, we're talking about just all of the scenes in eighties movies that we all grew up with in our generation. Yeah. People our age stuff like teen wolf and the uh, repo man and all these cool cult movies where there was casual homophobia, just, just o- open like the, the, the use of like, you know, fuck F-word, off queer and yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the F word with the G's in the middle. They use that just casually, openly. Yeah. And that was, and that was just this was sort just of a common word. It was the background noise hmm. and it wasn't discussed too often in terms of this being a pervasive problem. And I would hear when it was a lot of people saying, oh, it's really not that often. But when you see this documentary and we're seeing all of these examples of queer representation throughout Hollywood's history all pushed together. Mm. And you realize that if you only see two movies a year, (laughs) you might not realize how pervasive this is, but we're immersing you in this and we're giving you context that you might not have unless you were already looking for it, unless you were already uh, aware of it, unless you were watching a ton of motion pictures it's incredibly useful. And the whole bit about how so many people in the queer community were watching movies in Hollywood, just trying to find crumbs of queerness yeah, yeah. in order to build queer narratives where wherever they could find them is so important and fascinating mm-hmm. to see like just how other how so many people watch movies so differently and are looking for such important things. 
And if you're straight, you might miss a lot. Because, mm, yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not looking for it. And in fact, we, we've talked about this in previous episodes of, of Episode Zero for Rocky Horror, is the, the coded queer characters and how uh, queer audiences... We talked about this in the Hercules episodes. Yeah. How uh, those films were uh, considered queer icons because it was one of the only places gay men could see men being kind of sexual with one another. Yeah, shirtless, uh, wrestling, yeah. you know, yeah, there, there, hugging, was, there, there was an erotic fighting, element to yeah. it. Uh, another telling thing, we saw a film just last year, it was a documentary on Netflix called Circus of Books, oh, yeah. which is about a, a queer bookstore closed down, uh, but it was a huge, important uh, West Hollywood landmark mm-hmm. where you could go to get queer porn. Yeah. And they interview a lot of people who went to the store and they talked about how uh, there was a time when uh, gay porn was one of the only places you could see gay sex without any kind of worry or context. It's just people having fun. Mm-hmm. They're having sex because they want to, and they're just going to do it. There isn't any kind of stigma in gay porn. Mm-hmm. There isn't any kind of, uh, you know, the, the cops aren't looking over your shoulders. You're just there and you're having a good time. Yeah. Cause whenever or often uh, yeah. when homosexuality were any sort of queerness mm-hmm. was treated in the mainstream cinema, and even if there was sex, there was always this taboo yeah, that was yeah. being forced upon it by the narrative. There was, there, there's a film with Harry Hamlin that came out in the mid eighties called making love. I actually hadn't heard of this until I saw this movie. Oh, you hadn't heard of making I, love? I saw this yeah. movie when it came out and the whole bit about making love. Uh, I just that that one I guess escaped my memory and I haven't mm. thought about it since. Tell me about it, making it, love. Uh, making love is about a, a married couple and the the man Harry Hamlin realizes that he's gay and he takes a male lover and there's a sex scene. Harry Hamlin kisses and it's not a full on sex scene like they take yeah, their shirts graphic, off and yeah. they kiss and they're in shadow and it's all very romantic mm. and then they kind of fade out and then they fade up the next mm. morning and, and the deed is done it's a uh, Harry Hamlin uh, and Michael Aunt Keen Michael Aunt Keen who played right. uh, Harry Truman in Twin mm. Peaks um, Harry Hamlin was from Crash of the, uh, Crash of the Titans the uh, the funny bit and they point this out in, in the cellular closet is the preview for Making Love Oh God! Was <laughs> oh God! Was, uh, so self congratulatory. It, it essentially like it was. It came with like a warning. It's like warning. This is actually going to be a very frank, open, adult story about men and other men falling in love, and we're doing something really important here. It's like we, oh, we're really shut up. proud of ourselves. Making love sucks. Oh yeah, it's not a good movie. Like I never it's, say. It's, yeah. it's really well, bad. I mean, huh? It's been a while since I've seen it. I remember it just being kind of turgid melodrama garbage mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's well you can always tell when hollywood thinks it's making something important yeah the, you know the um the first film i remember seeing just out out in the wild as it were yeah where that featured gay characters as the main characters and there was no stigma whatsoever was the birdcage uh, oh, okay. with uh, the the mike nichols film with robin williams now i'm sure there are earlier examples this is just my own personal experience sure but yeah, uh, Nathan Lane and and uh, Robin Williams play a gay couple. Uh, Robin Williams had sex with a woman uh, earlier in his life, fathered a child, and now he's been raising his son uh, with, and with Nathan Lane. With Nathan Lane, as yeah. and they're they're the parents. They own a nightclub. Uh, it does play into stereotypes because Nathan Lane plays this kind of like mincing drag queen character, but uh, it does tr- take their relationship very seriously. Yeah. Uh, their relationship is what's kind of at stake here. And it, the plot of the movie is the son wants to get married. He's in college. Uh-huh. He's, he's met a young woman. Calista Flockhart. And play, yeah, played famous, by Calista yeah. Flockhart. And yeah. in order to gain her parents' uh, approval of this wedding... Mm-hmm. Her parents they, uh, are, cons- are conservative her, Republican mm-hmm. uh, politicians. It's like super conservative. And this was the mid-90s. This mm-hmm. was right around the time of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So yeah. there was there was like a step forward and a step back. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's this like super conservative character played by uh, Gene Hackman and the gay characters have to play it straight in order to impress these bigots. Yeah. And by the end of the film, the bigot is in drag. So, yeah. you know, at, at least he gets some it, it, understanding. No, it's, 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 it's handled pretty sweetly yeah. For, yeah. for like a mainstream Hollywood comedy. Yeah. It's I, really funny. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm straight. So my perspective mm. on this only means so much, but I, I, mm. it, 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 my experience, it's, it's definitely not as bad as many of the other films of the time. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I remember seeing some indie films like queer romances. Uh, I think my in first, the indie world, I but, think the first film I saw where people were openly queer and, mm. Like, that wasn't, like, again, it wasn't 
I think there might have been some elements, but basically it was just they're openly queer and it's cool. Hmm. Uh, it was Priscilla Queen of the Desert? I saw oh, that right. around the time it came out. We like mm-hmm. rented it on home video, which is around I think the same year, yeah. maybe a little before I think the birdcage. Early nineties, yeah. and um, I actually didn't see Priscilla until years later after yeah. it came out. But um, um, it was it was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, parts of it I realize now are unfortunately quite racist. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's at least yeah, one portrayal it's, it's that a, is it's a pretty racist that, movie. That is uh, that, not throughout the whole thing, but there's at least one character who is portrayed in an extremely racist yeah. fashion, and but again, that is that, really disappointing a, to go back and realize that. Oh, I really mm. forgot about that. And also, like Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything. Julie Newmar is another yeah. one. Uh, but again, these are about uh, stereotypically gay characters yes, you know, that, that, that dress as women, and uh, yeah, it it wasn't until. Like far after, long after the celluloid closet had been made, that queer characters became characters, and we're still bucking up against that. And uh, I, I, there is even still the studio that will occasionally make like a queer romance, and they'll they'll have to like put a big period on it. Yeah, look, we're making a queer like when Love Simon came out, Mm. they made a big deal about the fact that it that it wasn't. It's a sweet film. Yeah. It. My biggest issue is that Simon himself is incredibly bland. Yeah, but he's a little, uh, little milk toast. Yeah. But at least you know this is a, a teen romantic comedy where the big celebratory moment is when two boys kiss on a Ferris wheel. Hmm. It's great. Yeah, sweet. Very John Hughesian. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Hmm. Or uh, or uh, yeah, now we have uh, the character in uh, that movie Blockers, which is hilarious. That movie's great. Yeah. Blockers is so good, and there's there's we'll like, talk uh, about that. That came and yeah. went. It's so good. It's really really like, good. There was like, we had a, we had a one like year or so where we had like a bunch of really surprisingly good studio like, comedies like, like Game Night. Dumb, dumb looking but incredibly good comedies. Like yeah. Central Intelligence was okay. Quite good. Um, Formulaic but I, good. I kind of wished the character in that was queer. Uh, yeah, I but like he, they were going to go there. wasn't but really, they didn't really. But it's actually a pretty it's actually pretty earnest in the way it handles the impact of bullying. And when you realize yeah. that even someone who you know presents like as rock, yeah, yeah. Some presents as so tough as Dwayne Johnson and he plays it really well like is just still like loaded with all of this childhood baggage from being bullied as a, as a youth and how it still affects him, mm-hmm. even though he might look intimidating, but there was, it's really yeah. good. And it's, and it's funny. Like actually it's a pretty good film. Yeah, game night, central intelligent, bad moms, storks, like all these movies came out in a line. It's like, <laughs> these all look like crap. Wait, these are all really funny. <laughs> yeah. Pop star was another great one. Pop yeah. star brilliant. Um, don't, and, and don't sleep on Barb and star. We haven't reviewed it yet. I haven't show, seen but yeah. it yet, but yeah, we gotta, we gotta talk about Barb and star. It's going to be uh going to be a thing um but um but yeah mm. cellular closet is well, i think it's one of the must-see films yeah. if you're interested in film history i really mm. do it's where I, oh it's super um, important uh it, yeah the facility closet is where i got that gore vidal the story gore vidal tells about ben-hur oh uh, yeah, yeah, this, yeah this is where i first heard that story yeah. was uh stephen boyd uh plays judah ben-hur's uh old friend, childhood friend childhood friend and they get together and Stephen Boyd was directed as uh, that he was told that he and Ben Hur were lovers when they were younger. The idea is these people and, were childhood friends and now as adults, they turn on each other. And William Wyler and Gore Vidal, who was writing the screenplay, were like, why? It's pretty thin. Like, hmm. we're going to have all of this. And I love how Gore Vidal even refers to it as junkie. Junkie is like, a, a, <laughs> and it's just something to put into a movie as junkie as Ben Hur. Yeah. Ben Hur has been celebrated by the Hollywood firmament. Yeah, it's considered one of the greatest movies ever made, and, and it's kind of junky, actually. But um, I, I dig the hell out of Ben Hur. I just want to say it. I'm looking it's, forward it's like clunky and overwrought, and I kind of love it. I'm looking forward to getting to it on Only the Best because I'm, I've just never been a big fan, but all I want right. to sit down with it again. Oh, okay. But, um, but uh, they were talking about how, like, yeah, how do we get these people to, like, fight in this epic way that justifies chariot races and shit? And Gore Vidal's like, what if they were lovers hmm. and Stephen Boyd wants to be lovers again? And Ben Hur is like, nah. And then that's that. And William Wilder's like, can we do that? And Gore Vidal's like, well, we're not going to say it, <laughs> but we'll imply it. And so they told Stephen Boyd, yeah. and they didn't tell Charlton they didn't Heston, because he would not have been so, down for it at all. But that that actually lends a really interesting dynamic to the scenes in Ben-Hur. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so, and it's cool to know that that's actually like intended subtext. Yeah. Because yeah. some people are just like, oh, are you reading too much into it? Like, no, people who make movies are thinking out the stuff yeah. that they do. Sometimes they don't think it out well, but they're thinking it out. And so these are conscious decisions to evoke mm. 
ideas and characterizations and people and lives and yeah <laughs> this is all in there so um again again this is a documentary about movies and we're kind of summarizing a lot of it mm-hmm. and i just want to encourage people to watch it because i think this movie and again it's based on a book you can read the book too uh, and, that, and also it's you know 25 years old at this point it's 25 so. years old and so it's not covering everything but it covers everything up until 1995 pretty good yeah and there is way too many i think there's way too much of a tendency to try, to sort of like gloss over a lot of film history yeah and maybe only look at the highlights and there's a lot of films that are shown in the cellular closet that are super famous there's also a lot that I barely have heard of. Have you seen Victim? <laughs> I have not seen Victim. There's, a, right. there's a bunch of films that, in here. Oslo I'm like Dearden's 1961 film, Victim, uh, one of the earliest films in my experience mm-hmm. to just say the word gay and have wow. a gay character. Yeah. Um, blackmail, for many years, was known as the gay crime. Oh, yeah. Blackmail yeah, yeah. was specifically to blackmail uh, queer people and force them to stay in the closet. Yeah. There's a reason why that's a plot point in the movie Clue. Yeah, exactly, actually. Good point. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of clips in here of movies that you might not have heard of and you're going to want right. to seek out. Yeah, right, right. Watch the film with a pad and a, pen, a, pad and a pen because you're yeah. going to want to write down all these titles. Yeah, that's that's always fun. Or you could get a little lazy and just look at the connections page on IMDb. And that's oh. fine, too. <laughs> if, if you want, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But it's fun to do with a pad and paper. Hmm. Uh, you know, get, get involved. Make an active reading. Um but uh, yeah, so I again, I just highly recommend this. Like this, and like the documentaries that sort of helped form my vision of like how film and film history worked in the '90s. And I actually haven't revisited one of them in a long time. But were Sully Closet and Visions of Light. Yeah. yeah, Visions of Light is not very well available anymore. It's a damn shame. It's another um, one where the clips are probably really baffling. expensive. I don't. Although get it. um. I didn't see it, but you saw that great documentary on sound design. Making film. Waves. Making Waves. That's yeah. available. That's actually, I think that's, that's free on YouTube right now with yeah. commercials. And yeah, that's, you can get it. It's not amazing. Like, it doesn't, like, come together as well as, like, a narrative as the cellular closet does because it's not so much about people and, like, the emotional well, connection the, the that we have with the technicals of filmmaking. It's all the technical but stuff. Yeah. But if, like, you want to learn about sound design, mm. and I think it's a vital component of even silent filmmaking. And I think the movie actually gives a little short shrift to that. And I have a few quibbles with it, but um, if you want to learn more about sound design, making waves is a fantastic place to start. Mm. So that's another really, really good one. I don't know if it's like next level, but it is the only good documentary I've seen on that subject. Mm -hmm. So I do recommend it. Um, But yeah. So if you want to learn more than we can tell you, which is a lot watch Satellite Closet, read the Satellite Closet, watch the movies that are referenced in it, read the works of the people who are interviewed in it. We are not the end-all, be-all of anything. Mm -hmm. Not even our own opinions in some cases. So we just, I encourage you to do more reading. So for the Satellite Closet, obviously it came out after the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it is about many of the films that led directly to the Rocky Mm -hmm. Horror Picture Show. And and the Rocky Horror Picture Show is... Not really uh, in no. it very much. Well, and they interview Susan Sarandon. And it but then might we have talk been, about The Hunger. It might have been like one of those rights things uh, where they couldn't get clips for Rocky Horror. But yeah, they, they do talk about The Hunger. Uh, and Susan Sarandon has a great line where um, they said that uh, she she plays a woman who is, uh, ends up becoming lovers with a vampire played by Catherine Deneuve. Mm. And uh, they said it in, in the film and it's shot to hell that movie it's, like, it's tony scott's like was it his first feature or i think it was feature? i think it was the first or second feature but yeah, yeah like everything tony's... is smoky and beautiful and well that's tony scott ca- for tony you, scott yeah. and billowing <laughs> curtains and candlelight and and more steam and more smoke and everything and, it, yeah. and it's like just, just, just shut up shut Do up movie, just damn tell it. me a story oh no, you don't have one oh, i'm sorry uh, <laughs> hunger's a bit thin <laughs> hunger's a bit thin as a movie not the biggest fan of the hunger but yeah. uh there's a scene where uh, the seduction scene where Catherine Deneuve is seducing Susan Sarandon. She's like they're drinking wine together and getting drunk and they spill some wine on her shirt and they take their shirts off it all in that skinamax Vaseline lens kind of way. And uh, Susan Sarandon says, yeah, the, the, the filmmakers actually felt like they had to add the booze as this element, yeah. like to justify, to justify why the, I yeah, would have sex with and, a woman. And, yeah. and, and Susan Sarandon says, like anyone would need to be drunk to go to bed with Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> it's yeah. Good it's a good line. 
Anyway, Silent Closet, readily available on mm. streaming. You might have spent a couple of bucks to rent it, but it is highly recommended. It's totally please, worth it. Yeah. Please check it out. We think you're going to get a lot from it. Even if you feel like you know the material, just hearing this many wonderful perspectives, just watching this many wonderful clips, and really getting a wonderful sense of some wonderful and also some not-so-wonderful aspects of film history mm. uh, is just incredibly illuminating, and it plays like a dream. You'll just burn through it, be riveted the whole time. I think you're really going to like it. Um, so that is it for episode zero this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with another song that is name checked in the opening credits of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Another, another film that's name checked. What did I say? You said song. That's all right. Eh. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk about another film that's name checked in the opening credits, and it's also a film about uh, aliens who come to Earth and uh, try to tell us uh, important things about how we should be living. And in this case, it's Robert Wise's classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's one of my favorite science fiction movies. It's an excellent science fiction movie. We think you're going to enjoy it. If you want to watch it along, you've got about a week. And if not, we'll tell you about it in a week. That's how it works. Thank you. Anyway, uh, that's it for episode zero. Uh, if you want to uh, email us about anything oh, we discussed... What are you doing? Sorry, nothing. If you want to email... Stop it, Winnie. If you want to email us about... Really? Sorry, sorry. What Leave it doing? in. Leave it in. Leave in my errors. It's I am. Fine. <laughs> anyway, if you wanna, if you want, and I encourage you, if you want to email us about anything we discussed in this episode, we would love to hear from you. Uh, it's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where we have a lot of exclusive podcasts. Uh, we have podcasts about the 1960s Batman. We have podcasts about uh, movies that Disney is mysteriously not putting on Disney+. Plus. Uh, we have podcasts about every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. We're doing commentary tracks. We're doing Romeo plus Juliet later this month. Uh, we are, do have a podcast called All Our Yesterdays, where we're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek, and we're about to finish up the original series. We've got one episode left that's going to be coming up maybe even today. <laughs> uh, and I'm very, very excited because uh, what a milestone. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to dive into the animated series, which I think is a little underrated. Uh, and uh, yeah, all of that's there. So patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. A very special thank you to everyone who is currently a patron without whom we would not be doing any of this. Nope. Thank you, Thank you from you the so bottom much. of our hearts. If you can afford to join in, there's a ton of exclusive content that will unlock at any tier you sign up on. So you'll have it like right off the bat. Hours mm. and hours and hours of exclusive stuff. If you can't afford it, totally get it. Times are so hard right now. But if you could leave us a review, that would really, really help. If you see people asking online, hey, what's a good podcast? And if you like our show... If you don't, it's weird that you've listened this long. But <laughs> if you like our show, please recommend us. That would be really, really great. Any way to boost the signal helps the show a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, seriously, just thank you, everybody. You're awesome. Yeah. As, as I say, if you like us, tell your friends. If you don't, tell your enemies. <laughs> and until next time, I see you shiver with anticipation. Wait, did I do hey, that right? No, you did that wrong. Ah. <laughs> I just kind of swallowed it, but that's fine. <laughs>